doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls, Dolls in Doom. So, hey, Paula, did you see where just this week there have been some potential new updates in the Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman case? I did not. It's really interesting. Um, it looks like maybe a tip came in and they're doing some digging and maybe we can find some answers from almost 22 years ago. Wow, that would be amazing. So good. If if you guys aren't familiar with that case, we haven't covered it yet on this podcast, but um, it's basically a somewhat troubled teenage boy was shot and killed by a single police officer on like this deserted country road uh the police officer claimed it was self-defense that the teen pulled a gun on him first and it was found that that was the case that was the ruling but the boy's family felt very strongly that maybe their child had been murdered and there was some bad blood between the family and and the police obviously then about a year later that family's trailer burnt to the ground and the parents were found dead inside deceased by gunshot and the teen daughter and her best friend who were having a sleepover were missing and have never been found and that was Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman and for all these years no one knew what was going on and then and I just learned this um, right around the time of the Golden State Killer's capture some people a few people were convicted of these girls murders i never heard that it got lost in the golden state killer stuff so um now just a few months after that they're doing some digging and hopefully are going to find these these girls remains and finally give some answers to the family so that's the rundown of this case but this is a case i have been familiar with and followed for a while and i'm really really excited to potentially get our answers yeah definitely and we will definitely keep you posted absolutely maybe we'll cover the case from beginning to end I just did a very very quick rundown of it there are so many little nooks and crannies so many crazy details in that case that I did not just share with you so um, I encourage you to do some research on that it's it's pretty interesting but today we're going to be covering a case and you know Paula I've really been trying to put a lot of thought into what cases I cover. Like, I know you and I always want this podcast to serve a higher purpose, and we want to be really careful to never sensationalize or even inadvertently make a mockery of any case. These are all real people. These are all real tragedies. And all of the losses we've covered so far have left such deep scars for the people who knew and loved them. So as we grow as a show, I'm trying to be really mindful of whose case I'm covering and why. Absolutely. I, I know that you feel exactly the same way. And yes, the case I want to talk to you about today, Paula, it hits so close to home for both of us. Oh, no. Like literally. Yeah. It happened right here in Orlando. Okay. And I personally have so much in common with Jennifer Kessie. Oh, yes. Yes, you know this Yes, I do. Yes. So she's almost exactly one year older than me, like almost exactly by a month. Okay. We obviously lived in the same city, 
Literally, her condo complex is right next to an apartment complex where I once lived. Wow. We're both blonde. We both come from really nice, close-knit families. I really feel like I could have been friends with her. In fact, and here's the weirdest thing, when I look at a photograph of Jennifer, she looks so familiar to me. Like, I feel like I could have known her. Now, to be clear, I did not know her, and I probably never ran into her anywhere. I guess it's possible, but I probably just recognize her maybe more so than other victims because of the closeness and proximity. But I guess my point is that this case just, it really hits home. This could have been me. It could have been my sister. It could have been you, Paula. It could have been any of our girlfriends. Unfortunately for her family, this is the story of Jennifer Kessie. So Jennifer Kessie was born on May 20th, 1981 in New Jersey. So she was a Taurus. She missed the cutoff for being a Gemini like me for two days. <laughs> By two days. But since she was on the cusp, she probably had some quirky Gemini qualities, you uh, think? Of course. <laughs> she graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa and then moved to the University of Florida in Orlando, where she graduated in 2003 with a degree in finance. She got a job as finance manager at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company, located in Okoy, which is a smaller city just outside of Orlando, and she had recently bought a condominium at the Mosaic at Millennia just three months earlier. So she was doing pretty well for herself. Yeah. She would have been about 24 years old and able to buy her first home. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah. And, you know, this area is a nice area. You know it. The, yes. The mall at Millennia is, it's like our fancy mall with the fancy stores. You yes. Know? It's definitely more upscale. <laughs> yeah. Tiffany's and Louis Vuitton. And, yes. You know, it's got all the upscale restaurants. It is Orlando, so the crime is always going to be, you know, on the high side. But it was still a really nice place to live. And Jennifer, she was a really good person. She made wise choices. She wasn't living a high-risk lifestyle like some early 20-somethings might have been. She never had any run-ins with the law. She was just like a good, sweet girl by all accounts. And Jennifer was dating a man named Rob Allen. And the week before she went missing, they had gone on a vacation together to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. They came back on a Sunday, and their return trip was delayed a bit, so she actually spent the night at Rob's house, which was about two hours away from Orlando. And from there, she drove straight to work on Monday, January 23rd, 2006. As far as we know, Jennifer had an uneventful first day back to work after her vacation. At around 6 p.m. on that Monday, she was seen leaving her office by some coworkers. She talked to her father, Drew, on the way home on the phone, and she spoke to her boyfriend, Rob, on the phone that evening around 10 p.m. Now, I read in one publication, but only in one publication, that at some point during this telephone conversation with Rob, someone knocked on Jennifer's door and she did not answer it. If this is true, I find this really interesting. And I'm also very curious um, why I wouldn't have read this anywhere else if this is in fact true. So if she doesn't even get on the phone with Rob until 10 and then someone knocks on her door after that, 
someone's knocking on her door pretty late. Yes, I agree. Like, someone knocks on my door that late, my alarm bells are going off. Right, and I'm not going to answer it either. Oh, no, no. (laughs) But I would be curious to see who it was. Oh, yeah, I'll look at the people. Yes. Now, to be devil's advocate with it being a condo complex, I guess there is a slightly higher chance of maybe, like, a food delivery person or someone like that coming by late and just knocking on the wrong door but absolutely again what are the chances though true and we will find out a little more about this later but jennifer was actually the only person living on the second floor of her building at this time interesting yeah so to this day nobody knows who was at that door if in fact someone actually did knock on the door Now, Paula, I'm sure you can relate that, you know, when you're dating someone or in any kind of relationship, really, it doesn't have to be romantic. You kind of get into these like habits. You send a good morning text first thing in the morning or like my husband, he calls his mom on his drive home from work every day. Right. You come to expect these little things, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, they're like you're normal. Well, Jennifer had a habit of either texting Rob or calling him every morning before she left for work. But on this particular morning, which was Tuesday, January 24th, he didn't hear from her. So he tried calling her, but he said his call went straight to voicemail. Now this on its own, though it was out of the ordinary, doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong, right? True. Okay. Rob was made to feel even a little more comfortable with this because he remembered that she had said she'd had a meeting that morning. So he figured that she was probably just either preparing for or maybe even attending that meeting when he tried to call her. Okay, makes sense. Right. But by 11 a.m., when Jennifer never showed up to work, nor did she call out, it started to become pretty clear that something was wrong. This was a huge red flag. Though she was still very young, Jennifer obviously had her act together. She was a very responsible woman. So her employer actually called Jennifer's parents because this was so out of character for her. Wow. So Jennifer's parents, Drew and Joyce, immediately started the two-hour drive from Tampa to Orlando. And during their drive, they called the manager of her condominium and asked him to check her home with the spare key. And he did this. And he told them that from what he could see, all looked fine inside the condo, but her car was missing. And when her parents got to the condo, they agreed. The only thing that they noticed as odd was that her car was missing. Everything inside her home looked as though she'd had a completely normal morning. There was a wet towel and an outfit laid out as if she had recently showered and maybe laid out a couple of different options for outfits. Oh, yeah. She had a brand new pair of shoes that she'd told her mom she was excited to wear that day and they were missing. It looked like she'd just gotten dressed and left to go to work that morning. There was nothing of any concern in her home. At this point, her parents decided they needed to call the police and report her missing. And sure enough, tale as old as time, Jennifer's an adult. Like, she's allowed to leave and not tell anyone where she's going. So the police are a little hesitant to jump on the she's missing bandwagon. Allegedly, they told her parents that she probably just got into a fight with her boyfriend and decided to take a long drive to get away and clear her head, which, if you think about it, really doesn't even make sense because, you know, Rob and her were in a long-distance relationship. They didn't live together. 
And she really wouldn't have needed to go for a drive to, you know, get away from him. Exactly. Now, unlike the authorities, and I am not putting law enforcement down here. Like, I come from a law enforcement family. I do understand that, thankfully, most of the time, the quote-unquote missing person probably really did just take off to blow some steam. And if authorities went full throttle on every one of these calls, then they really wouldn't have the resources to focus on other cases. So I do get it. But I also believe that when a mother or a father says, listen to me, something is wrong, she would not have done this. I just think that deserves some attention. I agree. If, if someone really close to that person says this is out of character, it needs to be taken serious. Right. I think we mentioned before, like, if I don't come home, something's wrong. Right. If my mother didn't come home, something is wrong. No one would be able to convince me otherwise. Like, there are just some behaviors that you know certain people will never do. Agree. Well, her friends and family immediately went into action. Like I said, this was a really close family. And you can just tell by looking at them, if that's actually possible, that they're really good people. They were loving and they really, really cared about finding Jennifer. So they were distributing missing person flyers with Jennifer's photo by that very evening. And the Orlando Police Department did start organizing and implementing search parties by foot, horseback, boat, helicopter, car, and ATV. Wow. Right. <laughs> That's quite the, the wide range. Right, absolutely. Especially for that area. This is a pretty densely populated area. It's right off of a major highway or Interstate 4. Like, this is not at all rural area. Right. For two days, the only thing that the Kessie family could do was talk to Jennifer's neighbors, try to get Jennifer's face in front of as many people as they could, pray and wait. But then somebody found something. On the morning of Thursday, January 26th, a tenant of a nearby apartment complex called the police saying that there had been a car sitting in front of his apartment building for several days and it looked just like the vehicle of the missing girl that they'd been seeing on the news. And sure enough, police confirmed it was in fact Jennifer's 2004 Chevy Malibu. So Paula, you and I tend to talk a lot about surveillance footage on this show, right? Yes, we do. (laughs) We have very strong opinions on it. And that is that if it's available, you better get it. You better watch it. Why wouldn't you let it help you find out what happened in any particular case? Absolutely. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, in this case, you'll be happy to know authorities were on top of it and they grabbed the surveillance footage from the apartment complex where her car was found and they watched it immediately. Good. You're not going to believe what it showed. What did it show? The video shows someone pulling into the apartment complex in Jennifer's car. They pull into a spot and then back out and then pull back in. And then this person gets out of the car and starts walking away. Crazy thing is, when it gets to the part of the video where it actually like shows the driver, the driver is walking along the sidewalk and there's this tall metal fence running along the sidewalk. And then the camera's on the other side of the fence, okay? So the fence is between the camera and the suspect. Okay. This camera, instead of just taking one continuous video, it takes a photograph every three seconds. And in every 
single photo, this man, and we're just presuming it's a man, his face and any other potentially distinguishable features are completely obscured by the iron post in the fence. Ugh. Every single frame. That is so frustrating. This person got so lucky. Like, you couldn't do this if you planned it. Right. It was just complete happenstance that the timing worked out the way it did. And all we're left with is what looks to me like a tall, skinny man wearing all white. Now, I know that, know that like other people have watched this video and they see different things. Like, um, maybe someone sees someone younger or someone sees something older. There was some comments about like a distinguishing way that the person walked, but I think it's pretty open for interpretation. It just doesn't show us anything super helpful. It's so frustrating. But probably the most interesting thing is that the person does appear to be wearing all white. And some people have said it almost looks like a painter's uniform. Oh, okay. And what I find really interesting about this is I was Googling last night, like, painter's uniforms. Like, because I know I've seen it in a movie, someone wearing all white, but I've never really, like, thought about it, that right. painters wear all white. Today, I take my son to school, and on my way home, driving down my road, there's a painter's truck outside one of my neighbor's houses, and sure enough, everybody's wearing all white. And I was like, okay, yeah, they really do. Yeah. They really do wear, I just never thought about it. You know, like a jumpsuit, like it zips up front and it's literally the shirt attached to the pants. Yeah. Like there's different types. These guys were wearing like shirt and pants. Um, Some wear like bib overall type things. Okay. But I guess it's a way of letting people know that like they're professional. Like it's like a uniform of sorts. Right. Like we're we're from a company. We're not just some guy saying, hey, I'll paint your house. Right. But I just thought that was interesting. And this morning, like... And there it is. There it is. Of all the times (laughs) that I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, and that's exactly, if you look at this video or you look at the still frames, that's exactly what they look like. Okay. Just all white. So, of course, this video was shared, and all of Jennifer's friends and family were asked to look at it. But no one recognized the driver of Jennifer's car from that video. And authorities were able to tell from the video that the car was dropped off at this apartment complex around noon on Tuesday, which was the day Jennifer went missing. If she, like, got up to go to work, let's just say that's what she did, and she left her house. Yeah, this is only a few hours later. Right. So since the police were not able to do too much with this video, they actually enlisted the help of the FBI, who was called in to take a look and see if they could determine any more about the person captured on this film. But the only thing they were able to say was that the person stood between 5 foot 3 inches and 5 foot 5 inches, which just circles back to how everyone sees these things differently because how did I describe it? I said the guy looked tall. Yes. <laughs> five three to five five is what the police came up or yes. the FBI came up with. Yeah, that's quite the range. Trust the FBI, don't trust me. <laughs> um but it's just you know, it just goes to show how like everyone's perception is different. Right. And eyewitness statements are oh, you know totally really not that reliable. Yeah, I was in a situation where we saw this guy that was on the boat we were in the ocean this guy was on the horizon but he was coming towards the sand and he actually hit a girl Mm. and my boyfriend and I were in the water like a foot away from each other and we each saw two different things I said he was shirtless with dark blue swim trunks and then he said the guy was wearing a white shirt with, Mm. with dark swim trunks isn't that interesting yeah I would love to know which one of you was accurate or if either of you were 
like you know what I mean if yeah. it was like well, when we were giving our statements another person that was in the water also said that he was shirtless okay because he remembered the salt and pepper um chest hair okay so so interesting but yeah it's been proven yeah. eyewitness eyewitness not reliable not reliable at all and obviously we've just learned that I'm extra not reliable because for me, 5'3 to 5'5 five five is a really tall guy. FYI, I'm 5'3 and I'm like an inch taller than you, so right. not tall. Right. Um, there were some valuables left in Jennifer's car. So robbery as a motive was pretty much ruled out. However, some of Jennifer's items were obviously missing, such as her cell phone, her iPod, her keys, her purse her briefcase, and the clothing that she would have been wearing. And authorities, of course, tried to ping her cell phone, but its power remained off and they were unable to do so. And her bank account card has never been used since her disappearance. A search dog tracked a scent that led from Jennifer's parked car back to her condominium complex, and this led investigators to believe that the suspect may have returned to her condo's parking lot after abandoning the car, but there was no other evidence found in the way of like a scent trail or really anything else that pointed to Jennifer or her abductor along this route. A forensic examination was done of the car, but there was again very little evidence found, just one latent print and a small DNA fiber. And because of the lack of fingerprints and other evidence, it was determined that the car had probably been wiped down. So during the investigation, since there were no signs of forced entry or struggle, initially investigators thought that Jennifer was abducted after she locked her front door while she was like walking towards or getting into her car. And of course, the first people questioned and really looked into these types of cases are those closest to the victim, we know. So her family and her boyfriend, and in Jennifer's case, even an ex-boyfriend, were questioned almost immediately. So Jennifer dated this man named Matt, who was actually friends with Jennifer's younger brother. And Matt had recently made it known that he wanted to get back together with Jennifer. So police wondered if maybe, when rejected, he would have had a motive to want to harm her. But after being inter interrogated several times, he was ruled out as a suspect. Now, her current boyfriend, Rob, was obviously questioned, but he was ruled out pretty quickly also. Yeah, he's out of state, right? I just saw long distance. Oh, okay. And I know it's like a two-hour drive, so I kind of wondered if maybe he was in Tampa. That's okay. where she went to high school. I could be wrong. I didn't see exactly where he was, but okay. it, it was considered like a long-distance relationship. And remember, she stayed with him Sunday night when they got back into town. Oh, right. And then she had that two-hour hour drive to work the next morning. Now, when she disappeared, Jennifer's condo complex was undergoing a pretty significant expansion. And because of this, there were a lot of laborers on site, many of whom were not English speaking. Apparently, Jennifer had mentioned to some of her friends and family that she was tired of these workers constantly whistling and catcalling, which, hey, side note, guys, we don't like that. I was just going to say that exact sentence. <laughs> Wait, we are not dogs, so do not whistle at us like you are calling your pet. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, if you like what you see, you want to get a woman's attention, walk up to her. Look her in the eye. 
tell her she's beautiful or even better that you know seeing her walk by every day is the highlight of your day like yes that'll get you a yeah. date that's way more impressive than whistling at me like a dog absolutely this cat calling like it's gotta go and it really really ticks me off to know that this woman couldn't even walk into or out of her own home without a bunch of men acting like that right it ticks me off oh yeah me too so authorities did try to interrogate some of these laborers but unfortunately due to the language barrier this was not as productive as they would have liked honestly this part doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me orlando really is a melting pot of cultures we're pretty diverse oh definitely we have lots of bilingual people here and i know we have bilingual investigators so why they couldn't get someone in to have a real conversation with these workers i don't understand that right i find that a little sketchy that really kind of makes me think that maybe none of these workers were really high on the list of potential suspects at all but i did watch the discovery channel show disappeared and one of the things that is said in the episode about jennifer is that not only were a lot of these workers potentially not legal citizens, so not necessarily bad people, but just maybe not legal citizens. Gotcha. If that's the case, they they wouldn't have been super excited to talk to law enforcement. Of course. So I do think it's also possible that maybe some of them didn't come forward or come around while the police were there for fear of being discovered as undocumented. Oh yeah, I can see that. That makes total sense to me. I mentioned earlier that Jennifer was the only person living on the second floor of her building. And there were actually a lot of empty condos throughout this part of her complex due to this expansion. And therefore, there would have been a lot of potential places to hide Jennifer. And it could be possible that one of these workers would have had the access and ability to do so, especially since it's alleged that the construction workers were allowed to stay in the empty condos while the construction was being done. Okay, that's just weird. I've never heard of that. Me neither. And I would be really, really curious to know what kind of safety precautions, background checks, things like that were being done. Now, maybe they were. Maybe they were being done. But if your workers, the majority of which, or even a good portion of which, aren't even documented, I it really hard to believe that you're doing real thorough security checks. Yes, I completely agree. And I'm wondering what kind of workers' suits that they would wear. Were they all white? Well, I would imagine that the people coming in to paint could have been. Yep. Right? That's what I'm thinking. It's where my mind goes. Now, I mentioned that I used to live in an apartment right around the corner from this complex. And one of the things I personally liked about apartment living at the time was that there were always people around. And I always felt pretty secure knowing put it bluntly that if I screamed someone was going to hear me yes but knowing she was alone on her floor and potentially someone working in these buildings during the day and staying there at night someone who could potentially be staying there without a whole lot of security or background checking having been done on them that's that's a scary thought yes it is her condo complex was also supposed to be a gated community But the gate wasn't operating properly, so even that little bit of security wasn't there. The other thing about this, um, you can see it on the Discovery Channel show, Disappeared. The entrance to get into the apartments was, like, covered. So they were outside, the doors to get into the, and it's just like the one I lived in, Um, but they're, they're covered. So it's 
kind of dark. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so you go up the stairwell, and it, what is that? What would you like a landing? It's like it's yeah. a landing, but it's covered, and right. it's like in this hall. So you're not out in the open. You're not out in the broad daylight. It is a little dark. Someone could be up there, especially if you're the only person living on that floor. That is a little scary to me. Like, I remember when I'd go to my apartment, that was always the scariest part was like when I'd get to like the dark hallway. Yeah. So I personally think the idea of a laborer or worker being involved in her disappearance is very possible. I do too. Uh, To be well-rounded though, I do want to mention that Jennifer was described as a creature of habit. And that could make sense. Like if someone nearby had been watching her for the last few days and weeks. I remember, you know, my dad telling me when I first started driving, like, don't drive the same route home every day. Because like if someone's watching you, they'll know where you're going to be and when. Did your parents ever tell you that? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anytime there was any kind of like murder or disappearance, my mom would show it to me, kind of rub it in my face and say, see, this is why I'm always telling you, look both ways and pay attention to your surroundings. Right. Like don't be an easy target. Exactly. But by all accounts and according to her family, Jennifer would not have been an easy target. Though she did like a routine, she was really safety minded. She never went anywhere without telling someone where she was going. Smart. Yeah, when she got home, she was always aware of her surroundings and taking precautions. So if someone had been watching her, they should have noticed this. Like this should have made her less desirable as a target. I agree. But the big thing for me that throws the biggest wrench in this idea of someone watching her is that while she was out of town on vacation, her brother and a couple of his friends, including her ex-boyfriend, Matt, remember him? Yes. Well, they stayed at our condo while she was gone. So if someone had been watching her, they would have seen these guys coming and going from her place. And then she disappeared the morning after her first night back. So again, what are the odds of that? Like if you were watching somebody and considering attacking them and then they had all these guys there and then they suddenly came back, Wouldn't that throw you off? Yes. It would, you know, I imagine throw me off. So. Yeah. Time to pick a new target. Right. So for her to like literally go missing the first night she comes back is, I just think the timing's interesting. Yeah. So after looking at lovers, family, laborers, authorities turned their attention to Jennifer's coworkers. And the only thing that really turned up there was it was discovered that one of the managers at her office had wanted to date her but that she had refused him, saying that she didn't date co-workers. And that man was interviewed by police more than once, but he was eventually ruled out as a suspect. Human trafficking was brought up as a possibility, and it hasn't been completely ruled out, but it's not considered to be super likely. Although, here in Orlando, we do have a pretty prevalent human trafficking Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. In May of 2007, Kessie's company offered a $1 million reward for information leading to Jennifer, but the stipulation was that the tip had to be received by July 4th and Jennifer had to be alive. And unfortunately, that reward was never claimed. A $5,000 reward for information leading to her remains was made and I believe still is available through Central Florida Crime Line. On May 2nd, 2008, the Florida House of Representatives unanimously passed Senate Bill 502 called the Jennifer Kessie and Tiffany Sessions Missing Persons Act. 
to reform how missing person cases are handled in Florida. Specifically, this act directs law enforcement officers to start looking for a missing person who is 25 years or younger within two hours of his or her reported disappearance. And this law applies to those suspected of being in danger or the victims of a crime. Yeah, that's very important. Right. So that's something that's really It's a good positive. thing that came out of it. Right, sadly. As of July 10th, 2010, the FBI has taken over this case, and Jennifer remains on the FBI's most wanted slash missing list. Okay, so you want to hear this one theory that I'm not saying I believe, but I do find it really interesting. Of course. Okay, so I stumbled upon this article on this case, and it was written by a woman named Brenda Thornlow. And she outlined her whole theory. And I'm just going to do a really quick breakdown of it here. So I encourage you, look her up and like you can really get all the details. But her theory is that perhaps the knock on the apartment door the night before Jennifer went missing was Matt, Jennifer's ex-boyfriend. Right. Again, he's one of the guys who was allegedly staying at her condo with her brother while she was on this romantic vacation with her new boyfriend. And that would suck to be staying at your ex-girlfriend's brand new condo while she's off with her new guy. Oh, yeah. Like, that would sting. And it was definitely made known that he still wanted to be with her. And he lived, like, 25 minutes away from Jennifer. But yet, allegedly, on this night, he was out at Blue Martini at the Mall of Millennia, which is right across the street from Jennifer's condo. And, you know, we've been there many times. I was just telling you my Blue Martini story, you know, (laughs) the last time we got together. That's right. Well, Matt lived in a college town, so there were plenty of bars and hangouts that he could have gone to that would not have required a 20-minute drive. So what if after 10 p.m. he knocks on Jennifer's door and he's had a couple drinks and we've all been there, haven't we? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, by all accounts, Jennifer was a really kind and compassionate woman. So even though this is her ex-boyfriend, he is also her brother's friend. So if he was not in a capacity where he could or should drive, for me, it's conceivable that she might have let him in. Like, I can see myself doing that. I can see myself telling him he could crash on my couch, you know? Yeah. If, you know, if he wasn't abusive or mean or anything like that, if it was just a guy that it didn't work out with, but not a bad guy, just not the right guy, I wouldn't have a problem with him sleeping on my sofa To keep him from hurting himself or someone else by driving home drunk. Absolutely. Now, the one thing I would have done, though, and you, I'm assuming, probably would too, if I found myself in this situation is, I would have called my boyfriend, and I would have let him know what was going on, just to, you know, keep it on the up and up. Oh, I would too, definitely. Right. Like, you wouldn't want him finding out the next morning that your (laughs) ex stayed over. I would do my best to let him know it was happening, out of respect. And if she did allow Matt to stay... She didn't tell anyone, or at least not anyone who's come forward with that information. So in this theory, Matt crashes on the sofa. And the next morning, he and Jennifer have a little argument. And all of this makes sense to me so far. By dawn's early light, I'm going to find this hungover guy on my sofa much less charming. We're broken up. I'm dating someone new. Respect that. Stop bothering me. And this is really interesting in any possible theory, but according to this author... A witness at the condo complex reported seeing Jennifer's car leaving the complex haphazardly. 
Now, I didn't see that statement anywhere else, but in this article, the author did say that she'd done a ton of research, she'd listened to a lot of podcasts, she'd followed a bunch of rabbit holes. So I do believe it's probably true. I just didn't read it for myself anywhere but here. But if that is the case, like maybe they were arguing as she was driving him back to his car at the blue martini across the street, you know, and she was just like speeding or just, you know what I mean? Like in the moment, emotional. And probably wanted to get him out of her car so she could go to work. Right. And maybe somehow things got physical and he hurt her either accidentally or on purpose. And then he realizes he's found himself in a mess. And so he pays one of the laborers to dispose of her car or possibly even her body. I can see that. Right? And that's who we see driving the car. That's who we see on the video. Yeah. So that's her theory. And this theory was so interesting to me because one, it was so far off of anything I was thinking. Like I never suspected anyone she knew personally ever. But two, I think it's interesting because it's totally conceivable. There's nothing about this theory that I'm like, no way that couldn't have happened. Yeah. It all makes sense. It really does. I still don't think that's what happened. I just thought it was interesting enough to mention. And that's what I love about going on these deep dives on these cases. I find if you're open-minded, you can read something or find something that makes you think about possibilities other than the ones you've come up with. And it helps you, it keeps you from getting stuck on a theory. Like, how many times have cases been botched because authorities come in and make up their minds in the beginning as to what happened, and they don't do a thorough investigation, and then we find out later the answer was right in front of us the whole time, but they were just too busy looking in another direction to see it. Right. Oh, those frustrate me so much. So much. I can't stand it. I personally kind of think it was one of the laborers because they had the most access, I think, And also in the video, the person, you know, really does look like they're wearing, you know, that painting uniform or something like that. This part of the complex was mostly empty. It was early in the morning. So who would have been there, you know, that time in the morning to grab her? Definitely. The guy's working there. Yeah. I don't like any of that whole situation. I don't like the the staring and the catcalling. I don't like her being alone on her floor. Right. I don't like these men staying there in this complex without having gone through background checks. Yeah. I do want to say, I'm not going to get political, but I am all for anyone who wants to come here to this country and be a good person and contribute, live a better life. Like, come on over. My ancestors literally stole this country from the Native Americans who lived here. So who am I to say that because someone wasn't lucky enough to be born here that they don't belong here? I think we all deserve the best life. So I just want to make that clear. Like this has nothing to do with them being undocumented or anything like that. These men were out here working. They were contributing. They were working hard for what they had. And that is more than I can say for a lot of other people. But for me in this case, there just seems to maybe be a security issue. People should feel safe walking from their car to the front door. Security gates should be in proper working order. And it just seems logical to me that these people who were here every day in and out probably had the means at least to do this. So for me, that seems like the most likely of theories. I agree. They had the most access and the most opportunity. Right. Doesn't mean somebody off the street couldn't have just like it been a complete crime of being at the wrong place, the wrong time kind of thing. But but no gate, easy access. I I can see that. I don't know. This 
paired with the video and the that just seems like the most logical to me yeah i agree so that's the story of jennifer cassie happened right in our own backyard like literally yeah and i i still see billboards in orlando with mm-hmm. her picture on it that's probably why i feel like i recognize her yeah, is because i driving see you see her, yeah. her face yeah. yeah and it's terrible her her family is just like torn up as you would be and she just like seem to have so much potential and just again like the no answers we don't know if she's dead we don't know if she's alive we don't know if she's hurt we don't know if she's happy we don't know like no answers and that's when my heart really goes out to the families because all those questions must drive them crazy right just terrible which is why like in the loria bible and ashley freeman case like i hope they find their remains because at least they have answers exactly at least they know and something, I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing Loria's mother and, and she said, they were asking her how she was able to like keep going and be so strong because she really stepped in. There was a lot of, we have to cover that case because there were so many like mess ups in that case, including when the fire happened, they only found one body. They cleared the scene and they said there's only one body and they thought the father had kidnapped the two girls and it wasn't until literally... The girls' families went to the scene, started like looking through it themselves just to see what they can find. They stepped on a second body that the police literally walked over. So frustrating. Like that kind of incompetence. Right. From that moment on, they were like, we're taking over this case. We're leading this case. And they have I think anyone would in that situation. Like how could you not? All that to say, like she's just, she spent the last 21, 22 years like making this her life's mission. And they asked her how she's able to do it. She doesn't break down. She very rarely cries. She doesn't grieve. She just is, stays focused. And they asked her, and she said, I'll have my day to grieve when I'm standing over a hole. It's going to make me cry. When I'm, you know, when I'm standing over a grave, when we found her, I will have my day to grieve. Right. That's when I will grieve. But until then, I'm just going to work on finding her. Right. And I just think, oh my gosh, like that's all this woman wants. All she wants is to bring her baby home. Right. So, yeah, all that to say, these these people, they're living a life that I just can't imagine. So let's keep them all in our prayers and our our good thoughts because it's, it's rough. Yeah. We'll do what we can to help shed a light and bring answers absolutely and this one potentially you know someone we know someone we know may know something like it happened right here right in our backyard backyard so i know we have listeners from all over but here in central florida man this happened right here right if you know anything anything at all even if you think it's unimportant please come forward absolutely well paula you got something for us for the time to kill i sure do (laughs) i'm excited Okay, so like you, I love true crime. I'll watch anything. And of course, Dateline is one of those shows that I love to watch. I love all the people on there. But I got to say, Keith Morrison is by far my favorite. (laughs) His voice is just so smooth. And that silver mane of hair is just fantastic. It's heavenly. (laughs) (laughs) And I've watched Kristen Bell interview him. And she's a nerd for him like I am. And it was adorable. And also Bill Hader, one of my personal favorites, just totally nerd out over meeting him (laughs) and getting to interview him and talk to him. They were just adorable interviews. I bet. I really feel like his voice is just a massage to the brain. And I realized recently that I don't know a ton about him, so I did a little research. Keith was born in 1947 in Saskatchewan, Canada. He attended university there and earned a bachelor's degree in history. 
1966, he began a career in journalism for the Star Phoenix in Saskatoon. If I butchered that, I'm very sorry. They have interesting names, don't they? Right? After that, he held numerous TV anchor and reporting jobs all over Canada. He was also a news anchor for Canada AM and a national news TV program. Keith had several jobs as a Mid-Canada correspondent for CTV News from the mid-70s to the early 80s. His correspondent jobs led him to CBC's The Journal, which is Canadian Broadcasting Company, which was a nightly news current affairs type program. That ran from November 84 to July 85. He was instrumental in the development of Med Day, a network's first TV daytime news and interview show. In 1986, he was hired by NBC as a news correspondent in Los Angeles. He covered a wide range of breaking news on the West Coast and Asia. He also reported from China when the student rebellion in Beijing and the Chinese military reaction was going on. He is married to Suzanne Perry Morrison. She has quite the impressive resume as well. She's a writer, consultant, a political fundraiser, and was the press secretary to the then Prime Minister Perry Trudeau. And through marriage, Keith became stepfather to Matthew Perry. Could he be more interesting? <laughs> <laughs> You're so cute with your little friends reference. <laughs> Such a nerd, but I love friends. Could he be any more interesting? <laughs> I love it. Oh, oh, so that's that's the info on Keith Morrison. Very cool. I didn't know that. Man, his wife's a smart cookie, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she is. I Very impressive. That. I love impressive, strong, smart women. Yes. That's awesome. And I highly recommend going to YouTube and finding the interviews with Kristen Bell and Keith Morrison and also the one with Bill Hader. Okay, I will. I will for sure. But those are really... Kristen Bell can do no wrong. Well, both of them. They're both amazing. Yeah. They're both hilarious and very talented. I love it. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for that. Of course. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We just, we are so excited to be able to bring some more attention to these cases. Um, Find us on Spotify, Apple, Podbean, wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And subscribe to us and rate us and give us some stars or Whatever you do, I don't know. It really helps us out. We are finding that so many people are saying, hey, we really like this podcast. We just need more people to hear about us. And that's where you can help us by sharing. Tell your friends. We love it. We're going to start maybe doing some giveaways and stuff like that for people who start writing in and sharing and yes. all that stuff because you're helping us out and we want to throw you something. So, And I've seen several people over the last just two or three days more new fans on facebook liking our page and following us so that's awesome so thank you for joining the crew that's right i'm really excited to know that you guys are enjoying this because we love doing it and you know and we we think it's important to tell these these people's stories and we just love that you guys love it too so thank you so much we really appreciate it yes we really do all right well we hope to bring you a new episode every friday and until then we hope you have a great week We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.